Celebration Rock Podcast presented by 93XFM here in Minneapolis and UpRocks.com. I'm your host, Stephen Hyden. Well, this week we are not talking about Bruce Springsteen. <laughs> For the first time in a month, uh, we just finished our series last week on Bruce Springsteen, 20th Century Boss. And uh, I just wanted to say quick at the top of this episode that I appreciate everyone that checked out that series. It's one of the most popular things we've ever done. Um, and I just want to thank all the guests that came on. You know, everyone I think really took it seriously. They they took notes. They read books. <laughs> you know, you could tell that people really wanted to delve into all of these great Springsteen records. So uh, I'm really pleased with how that how that turned out. Um, I also want to thank all of you out there who have pre-ordered my book, Twilight of the Gods, uh, which comes out May 8th. Uh, the podcast uh, series uh, was kind of the first promotional push for that book. You know, I ran wall-to-wall ads uh, throughout that series talking about the book. And I noticed after the episodes went up on Monday that the sales spiked. Like I'd go on Amazon and like the numbers were way up, which tells me that people heard the ads and they were curious and they, and they, and they bought the book. So that means a lot to me. And I'm going to be talking more about the book you know, in the months ahead. This is a platform that I helped to build. So you know, if anywhere is going to be a place where I can promote the book, it's going to be the podcast. So bear with me as we go ahead here. I also have a special episode planned for when the book comes out in May. I was talking with one of my favorite all-time podcast guests a couple of days ago. And this person agreed to come on with me and talk about the book uh, when it comes out, this person is one of the people, one of the few people so far who has read the book. Uh, so that's going to be sort of like a, I guess, a digital book event. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure how many actual in-store events I'm going to be doing to promote the book. So this is going to be like the podcast version of that, of my, you know, my reading of the book, I guess, will be on the podcast here. So I'm excited about that. I'm also excited about today's episode, of course. Uh, I'm very excited about it. It's funny because one of the characters in my book is the guest this week. And I'd never talked to this person before the conversation for this podcast. And I have to say, I was extremely nervous beforehand. You know, I do a lot of interviews in my job. I do interviews for this podcast. So I don't normally get anxious before talking to someone. But uh, when it's someone who I really, really admire, or who meant a lot to me at some moment in my life, uh, the nerves do come back. And, And for this person, you know, I definitely had trouble sleeping the night before. Of course, the person I'm talking about is none other than Robert Plant, the singer and one of the creative architects of maybe, probably, perhaps the greatest rock and roll band of all time. I mean, I, I go back and forth between Zeppelin and the Stones and the Beatles and all of those big time iconic bands. Derek and I, we saw Robert Plant recently on his uh, recent tour. And uh, man, seeing him in person... I'm kind of on the Led Zeppelin tip again. I mean, it was pretty incredible uh, seeing this man in the flesh. In my book, Twilight of the Gods, I write a lot about how important Led Zeppelin IV was to me growing up and how the mythology of Led Zeppelin generally played a big part in making me care about music and making music a focal point of my life. So 
it's fair to say that Robert Plant changed my life, as well as millions of other lives. Now, in this episode, I talk a little bit about Led Zeppelin IV with Robert, specifically the song The Battle of Evermore, and how it relates to Robert Plant's lifelong love of English folk music, uh, as well as his relationship with Sandy Denny uh, who, of Fairport Convention, who was featured on that song. But we mainly talk in this episode about Robert's solo career, and I was excited to do that because, especially in the last 10 years, Robert Plant has been on an incredible artistic role. His last two records in particular, 2014's Lullaby and the Ceaseless Roar and 2017's Carry Fire, I think are his two best albums since the end of Led Zeppelin. Now, when we talk about Led Zeppelin, of course, you have to talk about Jimmy Page's guitar playing and his production work. But I think the reason why the band endures is the mythology, that Joseph Campbell idea of an epic journey into the wild that Led Zeppelin's music represents. That sense of that when you listen to this band, you feel like you're plugging into something bigger and more profound than just a rock group. And I think that spirit comes from Robert Plant and how he approaches art. And I think that comes across in this conversation. He's a very smart nice, funny, philosophical guy, and it was a real pleasure to talk to him. The conversation was so good, in fact, that I had to call up my friend Steve Gorman uh, from the Black Crows for a little post-game. So we, we have that after the interview with Robert. Steve has known Robert Plant for a long time. He toured with Robert back in 1990 when the Black Crows were just getting started. And of course, Steve also toured with Jimmy Page, when the Black Crows did that tour with, with Jimmy in the late 90s. So, you know, he has a lot of great stories about Robert Plant, and I think he also has an interesting perspective on the one question that I could not ask Robert Plant, which is, of course, the Led Zeppelin reunion question. <laughs> I couldn't ask that to Robert Plant because he would hang up the phone on me, but I did talk about that with Steve. So, first, we're going to get to the Robert Plant interview, which is great, and then after that, we have our post game. Robert Plant interview with Steve Gorman. So first, here is me and Robert Plant talking. I can't believe I just said that. <laughs> All right, let's get to it. So I, I wanted to begin our conversation on, on a personal note because uh, you and I have a mutual friend in Steve Gorman uh, from the Black Crows. Oh, yeah? Yeah, and uh, he says hello, by the way. How's he doing? Uh, he's doing great. He's still in Nashville playing music as gregarious as ever. Um, uh-huh. he, he was. Well, who was he playing with before? We, uh, I saw him in. Was it in Memphis or somewhere? Um, um, what's it, is he? Has he got a band now? Yeah, he's in a band called Trigger Hippie. That's it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's a name I didn't come up with. <laughs> you know, Steve's told me a lot of stories about how when the Black Rose were first starting, they opened up for you in 1990, and how nice you were to them and how like big that was for them at the time because a lot of people they opened up for weren't that nice to them. And uh, he, he told me this story that I thought was pretty cool that I wanted to ask you about. He said that at that time you would often rent a car in a town and then drive to the next tour stop so that you could explore America essentially, like stop at antique stores and flea markets and diners and anywhere else along the way. And I thought, yeah, that, was, I thought that was really true. cool. Like, Do you still do that? Yes, of course I do, because how many Americas are there? I mean, how many thousand Americas are there? Um, and if you didn't call it America, how many thousand sort of amazing independent conditions are there in the world anyway, everywhere? So it's all for the, uh, for the, for the enjoyment and the seeking and, um, uh, and the journey. And, you know, I kind of... Um, I suppose I must have traveled through from 19, 
December 68 to about the year 1982 in some kind of, um, I don't know, I was sort of, I wasn't in a goldfish bowl, but I was at the mercy of everybody else's energies. Yeah. And um, and so when it was my call, um, and I was, uh, you know, I, I, it was my call what happened to everything, where I played, when I played, how much happened here and how much happened there. Then exactly that, I wanted to see what I'd been missing for the previous 13 years um, and what had changed, you know. Uh, that, that I could vaguely remember from the vibrating beds on in a Holiday Inn when you put a quarter in a machine on the side of the bed and the whole thing took off while you were spending sleepless nights counting the number of um, suspended ceiling panels because you'd t- taken a stimulant that was going to keep you awake for a week. <laughs> <laughs> right. So now then what I found was so many, so many different Americas and um and I started photographing Main Street USA type of things, and um, especially down in uh, in the south, in uh, around Louisiana and um, places that got quite sort of, I guess, steamy and slightly exhausting for an English guy. There was the sort of vacuum of Main Street the main streets that were that had been superseded by malls on the edge of town, beautiful architecture and, um, and a thousand dreams that um, had subsided and disappeared into the mall uh, culture. Yeah. So there were beautiful places. But, and then more recently, um, without Steve or without anybody with me, really, I started tracking the um, the course of the Comanches and um, their journey from Comancheria and the Western Plains that Lead Belly sang about um, up to Oklahoma and uh, Fort Sill where um, ultimately uh, Quanah Parker took the, you know, kind of Comanche nation and... um, so I went on a mission to try and find Quanah Parker's house that the United States president had built for him in exchange for the peace treaty. And I found it. I found it in a field behind um, a roadhouse outside of Fort Sill in the property of a guy who collects old buildings. And you had to pay 10 bucks for the guy to open the padlock on the gate yeah. and drive for a mile through fields and stuff. And then... There was Quanah Parker's residence, which was enormous. Um, and with the curtains blowing still in the windows of the broken glass and that, you know, um, still some furniture in it from, I guess, Quanah Parker's grandson had perhaps lived there before they'd moved on. And how remarkable America is at conveniently forgetting stuff um, <laughs> when it's too painful to realize what's happened before. And, you know, this is not just a common thread for the United States. It's a common thread for for my country, especially with uh, the damage done. So to see it geographically, to see some vestige of all that 
which is not so long ago. Yeah. Um, and, um, yeah, so, of course I'm still doing it. <laughs> it's just what I'm looking for may change. Yeah. What I'm interested in. You know, as, as someone like yourself who, you know, you grew up listening to American music and, and, and being obsessed with it, you know, blues music, uh, uh, early rock and roll, R&B, to actually then get to America, and then you actually lived in America for some years. Uh, mm, yeah. Like, how did that experience change your perspective on the music? Did it deepen your appreciation? Did it de-romanticize it on any level? How did that well, affect that? Well, the stuff that got me here got me into being at the sharp end in the musical unit, being a singer, was the, the voice, the American voice, and um, and the attitude, which was, I don't know whether it was um, coming from um, late 19th century black balladeers and turning it into the sort of Frankie and Johnny's and the, you know, um, uh, Stagger Lee type stuff, which ended up being moving across and the number of times that these voices intertwined black songs would become white, white songs would become black, but there was a kind of attitude and and a vocal presentation which we don't have in England. I didn't know that at the time. I was just a kid who was enamored by the sound of the voice as, um, you know. So when it came to move through America in the the end of the 60s and the 70s, uh, we were always keen to go see what was going on from the Isley Brothers to Lee Michaels to Janice to, you know, Bobby Parker singing Watch Your Step somewhere in D.C. All that stuff was great. Did I ever think that I would end up living in America? I mean, no, I don't suppose I ever did. And then I think that having the freedom to make my own decisions about what I wanted to do musically, singing. Um, and that freedom and opportunity led me to be in Nashville with Alison Krauss. And um, I started finding myself capable of actually getting into the, the American nest and not just being a visitor. And um, so I explored more and more, and especially with Alison and Buddy Miller and and... You know, Patty Griffin's lean constantly towards Mavis Staples and the, the Staples singers and all the kind of stuff from Lefty Frizzell through to Marvin Rainwater to the legendary Stardust Cowboy. All this stuff was like, I was getting much closer to it rather than being um, <clears throat> a tourist in American American heartland. I was actually in it. And that's where the thing came from with the Comanches. I was living in Austin with Patty, and I was very happy there, but I found that um, I wanted to see what lay beyond the European effect, you know, which is pretty recent, and and uh, it is what it is. So as far as the music went, um, I found so many other people who were doing stuff that I couldn't imagine, you know, which I found really exciting. And, and I also found that it didn't, you didn't need to go to a gig particularly to hear it, or you didn't have to, it, didn't, it had nothing to do with status or 
um, mass popularity, it wasn't just about that. And if I were to be a British musician passing through, I would have missed a lot of stuff that I caught. So it was, it was more illuminating. It didn't burst any dreams. In fact, it kind of, it made me realize much more that you could sit around a table and contribute without the big deal. Yeah. Well, especially living. I mean, much more. You know, much more in a folk country, uh, or even you know, down in Clarksdale with the people I know down in. Yeah, you know. It can be very, very intimate, and um, and I think that made me start changing the way that I thought about singing, or or developing it a bit more, about creating more of an intimacy in my vocal approach to stuff. Right. Yeah, and I mean, in the records that you made here, you know, thinking specifically of like Raising Sand and and Band of Joy. I mean, those are you know, steeped in American music, as well as, of course, the other influences that you bring in. But, you know, like Raising Sand is, you know, described as like an Americana record, almost. And then you have these last two records that you've made with the Sensational Space Shifters, uh, which, you know, are made after you move back to England. And I I know that on, you know, your last record, Lullaby and the Ceaseless Roar, you know, that's a theme of that record. Lyrically, you talk about that. But I I feel like even on this new, on this latest record you put out, Carry Fire, uh, I feel like you can listen to those records and feel like, okay, this guy's not in America anymore. You know, he's maybe taken out of that context. I mean, do you feel like moving back to England like changed the sensibility of your music, the feel of your music, and all? Well, it certainly did when it came to actually the the surrounding structure of the music, the empathy between musician, sound, and the themes vocally, because there's much more of a meld. There's much more of a kind of um, um, an empathy, a marriage between what I'm saying, what I'm producing, and what the guy's contributions are. Because um, we would spend a lot more time in the etheria of making the sound, um, if that makes any sense to you. Yeah. Yeah. So we were looking for to make the whole thing one emotional or one visceral moment rather than just singing, you know, Rudy, don't take your love to town or whatever it is. You know? <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, that's different. And also I think leaving made me very melancholic. Um, and I think, you know, I didn't really want to leave um, Austin, but I, I kind of felt I had to really. Um, which is, sounds ridiculous, but um, so I was sad that I went. I was sad I left my friends behind, but um, um, and I'm glad I was sad because it means that they meant that much to me. Yeah, well, I was going to say that Carrie Fire. It seems like the melancholy in this record is talking about restlessness and and having to embrace that, but at the same time recognizing that you leave things in your wake and you're, you're sad about that. So there's sort of a, a yeah, give and exactly. take with that. Hey guys, it's Derek Madden, producer of Celebration Rock. More great conversation with Robert Plant and Stephen in just a second. But right now I want to tell you about our friends at Blue Apron. If you were like me and maybe you just got into cooking and you want to elevate your game a little bit, 
Blue Apron is absolutely perfect because you're not just making like burgers on a grill. You're making short rib burgers with the hoppy cheddar sauce on a pretzel bun. Blue Apron is the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country. And they've got all kinds of great meals uh, so that if you were thinking about like, oh my God, that choice of like what's for dinner. So many great options with Blue Apron. Up to 12 new recipes each week. Stuff like quick bucatini and broccoli and pecorino cheese or Italian-style shrimp and sweet pepper. Uh, There's great fresh ingredients and an incredible variety. I can tell you now I can cook for my dates. And they like it and they think I'm cultured. (laughs) It's because I've got Blue Apron. So if you want to cook for your family or impress a woman in your life... Well, we've got a great offer for you. Blue Apron is treating uh, Celebration Rock listeners to $30 off your first order if you visit blueapron.com slash celebration. So check out this week's menu and get your $30 off at blueapron.com slash celebration. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. When I listen to this record, you know, obviously, uh, you know, there's a synthesis of sounds going on, you know, and, you know, the, the, the North African music, blues, rock and roll. But what I want to talk about you with you specifically was the English folk influence on your work, because I feel like that's maybe a little under-discussed or maybe under-appreciated. Um, yeah, I've, I've been reading this book recently. Uh, it's called Electric Eden by Rob Young. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Yeah, I know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's about the history of, of English folk music, focusing on you know the, the folk scene in the late 60s and early 70s. And you know, Led Zeppelin obviously wasn't a part of that, but you, were, you guys were influenced by that. And I feel like you helped to maybe popularize it a little bit. I know, for, just speaking for myself, you know, the first time I heard Sandy Denny sing was on a Let's Up the record, and that brought me to her records and the Fairport Convention records. But, you know, Young writes about in that book about sort of the, the ethos of that scene, the, the sort of the, the bohemian spirit, the, the vagabond yeah, yeah. thing. And, and that seems like that was also very big for you at a formative age, that influence. For sure, yeah, because when I was at school... Before I went, even before I went to college, um, I was in a town where there was a folk scene that was, I suppose, you know, um, it, it was a much more cerebral way of looking at looking at the whole idea of time and how the sort of existentialism, if you like, of the abstractions of life, the appreciations of life through unaccompanied singing old songs giving some root to where we all were where we were where we are um and so i was fortunate because it was pretty um there was a pretty strong connection with that period there were a lot of um folk clubs around there was a lot of british versions of um uh, dixieland and sort of uh that sort of Creole jazz stuff was being played pretty well, I must say, by people who had become obsessed via the British players like Ken Collier and Chris Barber. So you had jazz mixing with skiffle, which was basically up-tempo lead belly stuff um, in Britain, which became ultimately Mumford and Sons. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, that's, that's where it goes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all that was going on. And at the same time, I was into Gene Vincent and I wanted to sing Be Bopalula for the rest of my life, which I will. Right. But, um, yeah, it was, there it was. It was all there. We were reading the preferred literature at the time, you know. 
Albert Camus, Sartre, trying to make my way through Franz Kafka's Metamorphosis, all those sort of things. We were all the the sort of precursors to the hippie thing were the beatniks, and I was a kind of baby beatnik on a Wednesday, and then I was an Elvis impersonator on a Friday. (laughs) But it was all about the music that was drummed up from those idioms. It was very, very beautiful. And Sandy, you know, and all that deal, I mean, then you can go through to so many other great British singers, um, you know, um, that are around still, June Tabor and people, you know, Maddie Pryor, these people really do sing. And Sandy went on to do great stuff as well, you know, with, um, uh, there's an amazing recording on YouTube of Sandy with Fotheringay playing in Germany live, and it's called, and the song is called John the Gun. Mm. And it's absolutely, uh, it's incredible, you know, with Jerry Donahue playing Telecaster. It's amazing. Yeah, so it was all there. The, you know, the, um, the Campbell brothers, Alex and Ian Campbell, um, up in Scotland, the incredible string band were working feverishly, and they were just part of the whole deal. It was good. It yeah. was great. And, and of course, um, you know, Jimmy was no stranger to all that, too. I mean, he was into Davy Graham, Bert Yanch, Sandy Ball. John Faye, um, all that was there. It just so happened that we had very tight jeans and um, kicked <laughs> ass as well. When you decide to, you know, invite Sandy Denny to be on a record or, you know, on Band of Joy, you're covering <clears throat> songs by Lowe. Uh, is there a part of you that, you know, that is just like a music fan in that instance where you're evangelizing to people saying, hey, this is great and you should, you should check this out? I mean, because Sandy Denny, of course, was known among music aficionados, but she wasn't, you know, a rock star in 1971, and you helped expose her to a, a bigger audience. I mean, is that in your mind well, at all when you do that? Well, think about that. You don't think about that at the time. Yeah. You know, you just say, I've written this song with, um, with Jimmy, but I've got too many words. And this is a story, the Battle of Evermore is the never-ending story, but there is a, there's, a, there's an A and B section in the song, I can't do both, I need a woman. And, um, and I knew Sandy, and I knew that whole deal there, and I knew her remarkable voice. But it wasn't about... No, I think I just I just love voices. And, you know, as far as the low song, um, well, Monkey and Silver Rider, um, I just think low make fantastic music. They make great what they call records. They make... Um, the Great Destroyer, that album, <clears throat> it's going back a while now. That's brilliant. And, 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 and with an accomplice and a partner like Patty, we could really just get lost in the whole idea of their song. And that's pretty good to do that. Yeah. Get lost in somebody else's song for a change. Yeah. You know, these last two records that you've made with the Sensational Space Shifters, they're, they're two of my favorite records that you've ever done. And I think what I like about them is that you can tell that they're band records. I, I think it's mm-hmm. very I think it's very telling that you credit the band on the album, like on the album cover. You know, it's not just Robert Plant; it's Robert Plant and the Sensational Space Shifters because it feels like a oh, real yeah. it feels like a real unit. Um, what makes a great band to you? What makes a band great? 
Well, I mean, I don't know about other bands. I mean, most bands are just bands and everybody's in the same position from the beginning through. But because I came along from from a sort of lofty place from a long time ago, um, it has to be... I kind of have to stay at the sharp end of things, but only in as much as using it, my name as a sort of sometimes to, to good effect and sometimes not, you know. I mean, I'd get a lot more alternative radio if my name wasn't at the front of this stuff. Right. Uh, I, I do believe that. I'm not going to lose sleep over it, but I'm, uh, sometimes it's... Um, but in the grand order of things, I am... I do come from the land of the ice and snow. <laughs> and um, so, therefore, I kind of carry the, this invisible flame and people work with me and we have to... It's not a big elephant in the corner of the room, but it's my, my deal. And these guys, without them, I'm powerless. Right. You know, I don't have the exotica that it would take to create this music. So everybody is equally as important. And, um, and especially with all the diverse, diverse um, musical appreciations that everybody has, each one, again, kind of individual. So the contribution right across the board is fantastic because it's a bit like a two-step. Um, people can kind of move in for four beats of the bar for about three or four bars of time and contribution and then they're happy to step back while somebody else adds a flourish so bit by bit you can piece that together like a sort of um, like a construction of some something you don't even know what it's going to end up like yeah it just starts and and develops into something that's really um almost like for example the thought the actual piece of music carry fire had such a a simplistic beginning with Justin's little signature, um, which allowed the vocal to begin. So the actual Justin's playing of, of the oud before the vocal begins is something that he would do anywhere at any time anyway. But he introduces, allows the voice to come in by playing this little signature, and I immediately flip my book upside down. There's something I've been trying to say for a long time. Yeah. And it just fits in with the kind of skip beat tempo of that kind of North African arabesque rhythm. And there the song is born. Boom. Um, and it's all around us, you know, the kind of use of the bendiers and North African drums, the, the kind of exotica of it. Everybody knows immediately, even in the tiny weeny studio where we work, People just pick up those bendiers, like on Rainbow, or you know, and um, and we got the rhythm going. Um, it was great to play, like for example, in Rabat, in Morocco, and take the instruments of that part of the world back in there, but uh, using different colours, you know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's great. I mean, I, I'm, I'm blessed. Yeah. You know, what's fascinating to me about your career, and, you know, and this is probably an obvious point to make, but, you know, you were in this enormously successful band for the first dozen or so years of your career, you know, a band that is still very popular and people talk about. And yet, you, know, you move on from there, 
and you create this body of work that is very different from the band that you're famous for, that you were first famous for. And it seems like as you've proceeded in your career that you, you seem very comfortable in your skin. You, you seem very confident in your artistic choices to an outsider. I'm wondering, like, in your own head, have there ever been moments where you felt uncertain or lost or unsure about where to go next? Oh, and, yeah. And how did you get yeah. over that? Ah, uh, gin. <laughs> or soccer. I don't know. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't know what the hell's going on or what it is. And I, I kind of beg to differ with you about Zeppelin and this. I think that the inherent um, character of Led Zeppelin was all about change. Right. It was all, all about stimulus and the need to be, you know, um, moved by movement, by development. And, you know, we ran out of steam and we ran out of bonzo but, and we probably ran out of time quite a long time before that. But, uh, um, but the change, the idea of constantly changing, was in everybody's spirit in Led Zepp, and it maintained its. For me, it's continued that that whole process of. Don't get bored with what you do because this is really a gift from the gods. So, don't, uh, don't sit idly with it because. If you do, you'll lose it. Right. It, it, it does it become a parody, and then a parody of a parody. It's like uh, <clears throat> somebody comes along with a gong, and you're out. <laughs> it, it does seem that you, you at some point, and maybe it was before this, but to me it seems like the Dreamland record is a decisive moment in your career where that feels like a definite break from arena rock. Like where you're like I'm oh, not yeah. like I'm not gonna be I'm gonna do something maybe more intimate and strange on my own path away from that. I mean, do you feel like that was a turning point for you, or, or was there like a moment of clarity before that where you're like, okay, I'm done with that part of my career? Oh yeah, I mean, I think the folly was, I think Fate of Nations was, I think it was I was straining all the time between the kind of. Um, the rock side of of the ex- exuberance of rock in things like now and zen but um way back in 88 or whatever it was but there was some there were, um uh and yeah and uh, manic nirvana there was stuff there like network news and um calling to you on fate of nations was definitely uh coming along the whole idea of using Nigel Kennedy and, and <clears throat> writing a song that was based on the constant question of aimless greed and coming to my life was a moment when Richard Thompson joined forces and I was shaping myself up for later on. But later on came in 1992 with Fate of Nations. I, I do really believe that I... I was able to get it. I went up into the Mojave Desert. It wasn't, I didn't see, you know, Arthur or Odin, but what I did see was the long-term view of actually getting on board the whole deal and 
I suppose really, let's see, 1992 I would have been 43, I think. But I'd, then I knew I'd arrived within myself because I was trying to break out and in all the time, you know, um, through songs from the very beginning after we lost John, from, through songs like Slow Dancer and Reckless Love and things like that, where I was really actually getting someplace. It wasn't just tokenism. And, um, yeah, but I think Dreamland was really good because I agree with you in a way because I'd stepped away from um, working with Jimmy in some sort of world of, I don't know, not... It just, I think I just about had enough of huge concrete cubes <laughs> of buildings and masonry in the German hinterland <laughs> with people punching the sky right. inside it and another five hours in the Mercedes to the next concrete cube. Right. And I wanted delicacy and I wanted to be as gentle as I can be fiery, too. And I, I wanted it to be something that was could almost be, I suppose, available in any environment, not just in the kind of the sound of the drums reverberating off the ceiling of some entertainment center in the middle of hell. <laughs> In the past month or so, we've, we've seen this rash of announcements from musicians from, that originated in the 60s and 70s, these, these farewell tours that keep getting announced, you know, Paul Simon and John. And clearly you, you are not on, you don't seem to be anywhere near saying anything like that. But, I mean, do you ever think in those terms of, like, artistic mortality, like, oh, this might be my last record or this might be my last tour? Or are you just moving forward and not even thinking about stuff like that? Oh, good Lord. I mean, I just, I'm, I'm just in the middle of a really virile ex, ex sort of... Um, I was at a prayer meeting in Raleigh two, three days ago, and I was in the same kind of environment when I was in Newport, Virginia, where the audience is actually doing something that I've never seen before, <laughs> uh, projecting a sort of will and a kind of collision of joy and yelping. Um, and I mean... They say three school year and ten is what you've got to watch out for. <laughs> but it seems like I turned a corner and somebody slashed like Lyra's knife went through the dimensional <laughs> changes. And boom, these people are going, they're buying the joy that we already have. So I think my farewell tour will be <clears throat> when they find me in some kind of, post-carboniferous rock face in about 10 million years' time. <laughs> that'll be heavy. Yeah, that'll be very heavy. I mean, you can't... You, look, you can't nobody should do a residency in Vegas. <laughs> if anything's going to do you, that'll do you. <laughs> right. Exactly. Elvis, Elvis proved that to everybody. Just stay away from Vegas. You will eventually destroy yourself if you end up there. Yeah, well, you know, he still had the fire. He just didn't have the friends. Right, right. Well, Robert, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for giving me uh, some time today. I really appreciate it. Oh, well, that's a pleasure. Don't forget what I am. I'm a media whore. <laughs> <laughs> I want people to hear my music. It's fucking real stuff. Um, and 
you know, I, you know, I, I, I don't want more than that, really. I just make music. I like it to be heard. And, um, and here we go. So I'll see you soon. All right, man. Take care. Take it easy. Okay, thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. All right, that was me and Robert Plant talking, having a great conversation. Like I said, I was very nervous going into that interview, but when I actually started talking to him, I was at ease within like 30 seconds. He's such a cool dude. <laughs> and I felt like that half hour went by in about two minutes. Uh, so hopefully I'll get a chance to talk to him again someday. That was a real pleasure. But if that is the only time I got to talk to Robert Plant, how amazing. You know, you, you talked to Robert Plant once. You, you can't get greedy after that. Before we get to our Steve Gorman postgame, I want to tell you about our sponsor for this week, which is our old friends at Harry's. Now, if you know anything about me, if you've seen photos of me, you know that I've got a lot of fur on my face. I'm a heavily bearded man, but I still need to shave. You know, you have that hair on your neck. You have the hair sort of on the high part of your cheeks going towards your eyes. Basically, the parts of your face that you have to shave or else you end up looking like the wolf man. You know, so I need razors that are that are good and affordable and that are going to get the job done. And I've really found that Harry's is the best way to go. Uh, Harry's stripped out all the unnecessary features in a razor. I'm talking about the vibrating handle, the heating blades, the 15 lubricating strips and all that garbage. And all the unnecessary cost to deliver customers one perfect razor at an amazing price. Now, for my listeners of the Celebration Rock podcast, I have a very special offer. Harry's is so confident that you're going to love the, their blades that they'll give you a trial shave set for free when you sign up at harrys.com backslash rock. You just have to pay for the shipping. Now, you know, I've actually done this. I'm a paying customer with the promo code rock, and it's pretty awesome. And you shave your face and your head. Shave my face and my head. I shave uh, a lot all the time every other day, and I was always running through razors. And now I get a great set of razors at my house I don't have to deal with all that crap in the drugstore and getting the guy to unlock the case and doing all that stuff. It's great. So all you have to do, you go to harrys.com backslash rock. You're going to get your free trial offer from Harry's. That's a $13 value for free when you sign up. You just have to cover shipping. And this trial set is going to include a weighted ergonomic razor handle, five precision engineered blades, the rich lathering shave gel, and of course, my personal favorite, the travel blade cover. And I know Derek is also a big fan of the travel blade cover. You got to love the cover. So anyway, go to harrys.com backslash rock to get your free trial for all my listeners. Again, that's harrys.com backslash rock. Okay, so I called up Steve Gorman, ex-drummer of the Black Crows, my good friend. Uh, you know, I had to talk to someone about this Robert Plant interview. And, you know, Steve was the friend of mine most equipped to talk to about this with because he, he knows Robert Plant. And uh, I knew he would appreciate it. And I knew that he also had some cool stories that he's told me about touring with Robert Plant that I thought you guys would want to hear. So here is me and Steve Gorman talking about Robert Plant. Steve, I had to call you because I just talked to Robert Plant and it was amazing. And I feel like I have to do a post game on this. And, okay. And you're like, uh, you're my friend that I feel like would appreciate this the most. And you're the one I'd want to talk to you about this. Now, I mean, you've done more than just had a half hour conversation with Robert. You've toured with Robert. You know him fairly well. You've also, of course, toured with Jimmy Page. So you've you've spent significant time with both of the you know main guys in Led Zeppelin. Uh, I guess just to start off with you, um, is it weird still if you have a conversation with Robert Plant or Jimmy Page, you know, even though you are friendly with them, is it ever odd in your mind to think, well, I'm talking to the guys from Led Zeppelin? Yeah, of course. I mean, no question. 
it's never odd as it's happening. You, wa- <laughs> you walk away and then go, huh? Like I never even thought as a kid to, to imagine that happening. So, um, uh, my the, when Robert was working with Allison Krauss, you know, which is over a decade ago, putting that record together, raising sand here in Nashville, he was in town a lot. So you'd hear people saying, like, I saw Robert playing at, at at Starbucks or whatever it would be, and there was a day when and Allison and I live on the same street, and I was leaving, I was running to the airport, and I was late, so I'm screaming down my road, going way too fast. One morning, and I just drive past her house, and Allison and I are friendly, just as neighbors more than anything else. And I look over, and the two of them are standing in the front yard, just having a chat. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I, and I had heard Robert was in town, but I didn't know he was doing anything with with Allison yet. And I stopped the car, I put the window down, and he looks over, and I go, "Hey!" And he goes, "Hey!" And I said, "What are you doing here?" And he looked at me, and goes, "What are you doing here?" And I said, I, I live on this street. You're on my street. And he goes, no, you're on Allison Street. And I said, oh, yeah, I guess that's probably fair. I could deal with that. And he goes, well, get out of that car and come say hello. And I said, no, I'm, I'm late. But okay. And I just like put up the window and kept driving. And we, both, and we were like laughing at each other because it was such a bizarre thing. And I only bring, I mean, there's no real story there other than he's just a dude hanging out in someone else's front yard. And I drove by and we yelled at each other and I drove off even there. That was like the most, I would do that with a million different people, but I was driving to the airport going, that's Robert Plant. <laughs> he was just, he was like, you know, two blocks from my house and he was standing there talking. And, and, and I, you know, I ran into him at the mall once with my kids right after Christmas, he was returning a gift. I mean, it was just, you know, normal stuff like that. And so, it's always totally natural and normal to see him. And then it's always after it's like, you know, I, you know, I walk back to the car with the kids and you know, this is years ago. And they're like, was that the guy, what band was that guy in? And I said, well, he, he was in a band called Led Zeppelin. And I hear myself saying those words and it's like, Oh my God, that guy was at Led Zeppelin. He's always like that, but he's such a personable guy. I imagine when you spoke to him, that it was very easy once you got going because he's just a, he's just a dude. Very. Uh, he was a very easy, and uh, I was extremely nervous going into it. Like, I, I don't really get nervous doing interviews anymore, but right. for him I was nervous because it was like it was like interviewing Batman or, you know, any childhood <laughs> yeah, superhero right. or something. Sure. And I know, like, I mean, I, and, you know, you've told me stories about Robert Plant before, and uh, you met him in 1990. Yep. Touring with him, and, like, just tell people like what was that like just opening up for him because i because at that time i mean the black rose you had opened up for other sort of big time rock people and it hadn't been that positive well we of an yeah experience. we had opened already for aerosmith in the summer of 90 and it was really really bad um <laughs> and they were in a weird place in their lives and in their career that's well documented and we don't need to waste time on it but it was just for us getting an opening slot with aerosmith we thought we were going to go on tour and have a fun time and with, you know, like Aerosmith, and they were in a really, really crazily bubble-isolated world of sobriety and, and rules and firm lines in the sand about everything, and it really wasn't enjoyable on any level. From there, we went and opened for Heart for a few weeks, uh, which was totally pleasant. They couldn't have been nicer, but it was not an audience we cared about or who cared about us. It was a little odd, to say the very least, and from that, we go to Robert Plant, and at this point, after two arena tours and having nothing resembling a great time, I think we had all just sort of resigned ourselves to, wow, none of these people are cool or none of these experiences are what we would have imagined, and this is a little strange. And so we, we, we start to we, we get, get ready to open for plant, and we were not looking forward to it with anything other than 
let's just see what this is. And in my mind, I remember thinking, like, we probably won't even meet him. He probably won't even know that we're on the tour. He's Robert Plant. This is, and this is 10 years after Led Zeppelin. And, and now I say only 10 years, but to us at the time, 10 years was forever. Yeah. And we're thinking, you know, he's, he's been Robert Plant for as long as we've been alive. And he's a huge deal, and he's not even going to be around. He'll probably land from a helicopter for the first number and leave by a jetpack during the encore. You know, like in our mind, we don't know what to expect. And nothing could have been farther from the truth. We opened the tour at Red Rocks, and we're so it's cool to just be at Red Rocks for the first time. And about, you know, 15 minutes before our set, our dressing room door opens, and he just walks in by himself and is completely like, he's like, hello, boys. How are we? It's good to see you. I love the record. It's great to have you out. I mean, I don't think any of us said a word for two minutes. He just talked, and we all stood there like mute going, oh, shit, that's Robert Plant. And he seems to be a friendly guy. And it took us a minute to compute, you know, all of this in process. But he just was right away off and running and introduced himself to individuals. Hey, hello, I'm Robert. Hey, hey, Robert, good to meet you. And we're all, you know, all you're thinking is, yeah, I know who you are. And... <laughs> And but he's the kind of guy who that night knew all of our names. You know what I mean? Like he never had to ask you what your name was. He'd see you at any time. And I mean, like like you know, the next day we did two nights at Red Rocks. The second day, and then again, he, as great as he was, and as much as he said, "Our tour is your tour. Anything you need, just ask for it. Let's you know, let's have fun. We're gonna have a great time." He, he was saying all this stuff the first night, and you still walk away thinking, "Well, I, I doubt it." And the next day you see him, and he's like, "Hey, Steve." How was it last night? You know, and you're just thinking, oh my, or I, I should say, I was thinking, this is unbelievable. This is, this is truly uh, beyond what I ever would have imagined. And, and the entire tour was, I think it was probably a month, maybe six weeks. And, and every day was fun. Any interaction we had with him, and there were a lot of them, it was really about being in the moment, experiencing something, having a laugh. And, and then getting on to the next thing. I mean, that, that tumbleweed a guy who's very present and not looking back, that, the, the, that image of Robert Plant, I mean, that was completely apparent and real in 1990. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You told me this story about how on that tour, there was a tour break in the middle, about three or four days, and Robert actually went off on his own and he didn't know why at the time. Can you tell that story? I mean, that's really Oh, touching. it was yeah, we had we were in Canada and then we ended up there was like this three days uh where we just went to a national park and you know, like we were like riding horses and playing golf and having campfires. We were just up in the middle of Winnipeg in Manitoba. Um just for a few days. And and at no point did any of us question like, well this is we just thought, oh well this is the kind of thing he does sometimes. So, you know, it didn't occur to us that to, to even wonder why there was this break, it's just what it was, and it was it was a few days after that that something crossed my you know entered my periphery where I realized it was the tenth anniversary of Bonham's death. Yeah, and and so for a few days there he and I, I don't you know we didn't know where he went, what he did, uh, but and then and then we were told that he went to England for a couple of days, and I, I I assume he went back and spent some time with with Pat um, Bonham. So, but but I didn't ask and. And it's, and it's funny because looking back now, when he got back, the next time I saw him, I could have absolutely gone right up to him and said, what'd you do to uh, on the 10 years? And he would have talked about it. There were no 
conversations he wouldn't have. You know, like we were wondering all along, I wonder if he'll want to talk about Led Zeppelin. And, and he was, you could ask him anything and he would have, you'd, you'd ask him one thing and he would have six great stories for you. It was all just comfortable and easy and, and just a, a, an absolute blast at all times. I just love the fact that he had to recognize the anniversary of Bonham's death. You know, the, the, his best friend Bonzo. You know, he, yeah. It's like, I can't be on the road now. I have to go home. I have to yep. see... You know, I, I have to pay my respects in some way. Uh, I, I, I just love that. I think that's, that's such a touching thing. Hey, guys, uh, we're back to the pod with Steve and Steve in just a second. But let's talk about our friends at SeatGeek right now. Buying tickets can be complicated and confusing, but there is a better way to buy with SeatGeek. SeatGeek is the smartest, easiest way to get tickets to every type of live event, whether you're searching for a last-minute deal or playing a night out with friends or you need to find the perfect gift. SeatGeek helps you find the best seats at the best prices fully guaranteed there's nothing quite like being there in person and SeatGeek will get you closer to the action for a great value now uh like steven i have the SeatGeek app on my phone it's by far the easiest way i found to shop for tickets i can be anywhere and then just with a couple of taps i can instantly find seats i actually use SeatGeek uh, to buy tickets for the golden state warriors who are in town uh this weekend i'm a big warriors fan that's a tough ticket, and SeatGeek made it easy because you can find seats that fit your budget or get the best bang for your buck. SeatGeek grades every ticket based on value. That's pretty cool. And they save you time and money by searching multiple ticket sites to compare the prices and find amazing deals. And, of course, when you're buying your ticket, what do you want? You want to make sure that everything's legit. Every purchase with SeatGeek is fully guaranteed, so you can shop for tickets on SeatGeek with confidence make SeatGeek your go-to app for finding the best deals on every type of ticket from sports and concerts to comedy and theater and best of all listeners to celebration rock get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code celebration today that's promo code celebration for $20 off your first SeatGeek purchase okay let's get back to the rest of the podcast there's another thing too about like when uh, you guys were in Chicago, right? And you went to a blues club with yeah. him. Um, yeah, we we had played in. Uh, we, we were doing two nights at the Rosemont Horizon, I think it was. And after the first night, or during the first night, at some point, he said, "Do you guys want to go out and see some blues?" And and we, and, you know, and of course, when Robert Plant says, "Do you guys want to go see blues?" The answer is yes. <laughs> right. Of course we do. Yeah. And so we. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and what we're thinking is, and by the, you know, he had, his band at the time were all cool guys, and we got along with them great, too, and we were seeing them. But, you know, Robert was as present at the venue during the day as his band. It wasn't like they were there all day and he turned up for the gig. I mean, you'd be sitting at catering, and he'd pull up a seat next to you with his bowl of soup, just like you were eating. I mean, he's just a totally one of the people on the tour in that capacity. And so... I remember thinking, like, oh, I guess we're all going to go out, you know, like the two bands will all leave together. And his tour manager came over and said, okay, guys, as soon as he gets off stage, we'll have a van ready. So, you know, be around so I don't have to track you down. So when his set ended, we were standing backstage, and he walks off stage, and he hops right into a white van, and we all hop into it with him. And it's just him and, and our band, just him and the five members of the Black Crows and his tour manager. And we're just off, like, boom, out of the building. And we just go out and we hit hit the Chicago blues scene with Robert Plant. And, you know, it was just, you know, the, the, we, we're all just kind of look. We just give each other that quick look of, this is cool. And then you're just right back in the moment with him. And he's talking about the first time we came here in 1969, 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And everything's a story from those early Zeppelin days. And by this time on the tour, we had already spent time with him and we had already uh, talked enough about, and he would say like, why well, I love, I love real bands, a proper band. Like you guys, that you guys are like, we, we were when we were that, you know, our first tour, you know, first record, it was all fresh. I mean, he kept, he always told us like, I just, I love the energy. There's something about a real band that you just can't fake and it's just either there or it's not. And so, you know, that always pleased us to no end. <laughs> and, he was just so so this night he's talking about different things and we went to a few different places the big thing of the night was we ended up at the checkerboard lounge and we walked in and we sat down and the house band was playing and the guy who's like the MC and the checkerboard is a hole in the wall it's a legendary place but it's you know it's not like a it's not a gentrified blues club by any stretch of the imagination in 1990 and um, we're in, the, we're in the room and it's really late and everybody's really drunk. But the the guy on the stage, he says, "Ladies and gentlemen, we got a special guest in the house tonight. You know him. He came over from England, brought the blues back to America." And people are all looking around like nobody had any idea who who we were, and even or for that matter, who Robert Plant was in the club. It's an older clientele of of Chicago blues aficionados. There's no hipsters within a thousand miles of this place. And uh, and he goes, you know him. He came from England, brought the blues back to America. Let's hear it for him. He's in the house tonight, Mr. Led Zeppelin. <laughs> he goes, where are you, Led? Stand up, Led. And everybody's clapping and turning around. You know, like you see everybody, you know, craning their neck, like, oh, I've heard of him. Where is that guy? And he stands up, and we are all just dying, like we're falling out of our chairs. And he's laughing harder than anybody. And he stands up and then stands on his chair to wave and greet. And everyone's like, yeah, and people come by the table and they're like, hey, Led, good to meet you, man. And he's like, thank you, hello, hello. And signed a couple autographs and signed Led Zeppelin as his autograph. And we were just, I mean, it's just so funny. And, you know, there's not an, there was nothing precious about him at all. I mean, on any level. And in fact, that night ended, I got, I got, uh, they, you know, they coaxed me to go sit in with the band. And I was for the really one of the very few times in my life that I can even remember honestly too drunk to play. I couldn't <laughs> make sense of the straightest, simplest beat on earth. I couldn't find the one no matter what. And I was finally uh, removed from that position. And I was stumbling as we all stumbled out. He kind of patted me on the back, and I remember he, I do remember him going, like, that's okay, next time, you'll get it, you'll get it. And he's just laughing at me. And we walked out on the sidewalk, and, I, and in my mind I was thinking, like, i got to come up with a really funny thing to say. And as I'm trying to think of what to say, I just threw up all over the sidewalk <laughs> instead. And, 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 you know, he just everybody just jumped out of the way and laughed and got in the van, and we were on our way again, you know. And it was just it, nothing about that night was uh, – you know, it was special to all of us, and it was a genuinely good time. But it was just a night. It could have been anybody there, uh, and it just happened that it was Robert Plant. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. like with all that he brings along, he's still just happy to be out with a bunch of young, hungry musicians seeing some real blues. And you threw up in front of Robert Plant. I did, right in front of him. So how great is that? Pretty special. <laughs> so, Steve, I know I you have to... I don't think I was the first guy to do that. <laughs> no, I'm sure. I'm sure he's seen many people puke in front of him in his days. I would imagine so. And I will say this, too. My, the other thing, just I, I don't know how much time you have, but uh, we were in, I think it was Richmond, Virginia, and I used to walk into their dressing room before their sets with he and his band, and I would look at the set list, and I would say, nah, I don't know about this. What do you think? And they would all laugh. It was like I'm picking apart what Robert Plant's about to go do. 
that was just my shtick for the tour. And I walked in there one night and I said, hey, Robert, if you don't mind, uh, can we address something? And everyone's immediately knows here comes some bullshit and it's all lighthearted. And there's a song he had called Anniversary. And, and it was a part of the night where he would actually put on a guitar. And in the middle of the song, he would, all the lights were just on him, center stage. And he played like a distorted feedbacky solo, just made noise, basically, with this guitar. And it was a big, dark, you know, real intense red lighting. It was a very emotional moment in his set. And I said to him, I go, hey, listen, this anniversary thing, I'm just not feeling it, okay? And I, I, I think if... if I need more from you at that moment in time. I need more. I need to feel your pain. And his band is all just laughing. And he looked at me and goes, well, why don't you come up tonight and show me what I should do? And I said, oh, that's a great idea. I'll be there. And he looked at me and goes, you don't have the balls to come on my stage. <laughs> and I said, I said, well, I guess we'll find out during anniversary, won't we? And everyone's like, ooh, and it's all that. And he laughs. He goes, okay, I'll see you in a little while, lad. And he walks out of the room. And I have a laugh, and I think it's over. And his keyboard player, this guy, this guy, oh, shit, I can't think of his name. Uh, he looks at me and goes, you know, you have to go, right? And I said, I got like, what do you mean? He goes, you have to go on stage during anniversary. And I said, I'm not going on his stage. I'm not going, you know, we're in an arena, you know. I'm like, I'm not going up there. He goes, oh, no, no. And they all go, oh, no, God, no. He just challenged you. If you don't go out there, he will make your life miserable. He'll never <laughs> let you forget it. That was a direct challenge. And now I'm thinking, are they fucking with me? You know, like, what's the deal? And I go find Rex King, his tour manager, who used to work with Zeppelin. He'd been around forever. And I said, Rex, I told Rex what happened. And before I even asked, Rex goes, okay, so what are you going to do? And I go, what do you mean? He goes, well, I mean, you have to go on stage. What are you going to do? And I go, is this real? Like, I have to go? And he goes, oh, you better go. So... All this to say, I spend the next hour like drinking myself into a place where I'm not going to freak out to do this because I, you know, I I chose wisely. I sit behind a big drum kit with cymbals. You know, <laughs> like I love being on stage and I like having a wall in front of me. Um, this is walking out on front where Robert Plant stands and fucking with him during his set. <laughs> like I'm like, oh my god, what have I got myself into? So I took a rose. There was a long stemmed rose in his dressing room. And I took that and two tambourines, and I was waiting for the moment. And when he started that really emotional moment where he's just screaming and he's like, ah, that's this dirgy thing, and he starts to play this feedback, I just come sort of dancing in this little, really slow-moving rumble from left to right across the stage. And I got a tambourine in each hand, and I'm shaking him to the time of the song, and I've got this rose in my teeth. And I'm just moving towards him really slowly. And, of course, they had told the lighting guy to be looking for me, so a, a light hits me, like I'm lit as I'm walking towards him. And he's, like, bent over, and his eyes are closed, and he's putting all of his angst into this guitar thing. And then as he slowly opens his eyes, he sees me coming. And the look on his face, I mean, it was one of my favorite things of all time. It was truly like... I can't fucking believe this kid is doing this. Like he was looking at me and I'm looking at him like, don't kill me, please don't be mad at me. And he just starts and he's bent over and kind of looking down so the audience can't see his face, but he is grinning like ear to ear. And then as soon as I get near him, he like 
comes out of his sort of a squat position, and he, like, body checks me, like, lays his shoulder right into me. He's a big dude, you know? We're, like, so we're two six-foot-tall-plus people, (laughs) and as I'm dancing, we're just, like, body-checking each other, like, back and forth, and we're both, and he's laughing, and I take the rose out of my teeth, and I stick it into his hair, and it gets stuck, and he can't get it out. (laughs) And he's looking at me, and he was like, you're a dead man! That's what he's saying as we're bumping into each other. And I walk up, and I slowly... Like, it kind of looked like I never really broke stride. I was just going across the stage, and in the middle, we had a bit of a hockey fight, and then I kept going. And I get off stage on the other side, and I walk to the dressing room, and everyone in my band is, like, freaking out. His crew, every member of his crew is like, that's the greatest thing we've ever seen. And I just have to wait. And so when their set ends, I go to his dressing room, and he always has his own, like, he's got a bottle of wine and a glass, and he walks in, and he's going, where is he? Where is he? And as he walks in, I'm drinking his wine. (laughs) And he goes, oh, well played. All right. But this isn't over. And then we all had a laugh. And if I named everybody else that the band ever opened for, and I tried to imagine doing that to anyone else the band ever opened for, it would not have ended well, I can assure you. It's like Steven Tyler would not have uh, been into that. <laughs> that would have been a very, very different experience altogether. So I know you have to run here, but before you go, you know, I can never ask this question. You know, I, I couldn't ask Robert this question, of course, but you know, as someone who knows Robert a bit and knows Jimmy Page a bit, are they ever going to play together again, you think? Nope. Nope. <laughs> not a chance. <laughs> So, so you're not even going to, like, tantalize people with, like, the possibility of a... Nope. 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 Go put on that... Go put on the new Robert Plant record. I mean, yeah. it's, it's really good. You know what I mean? Like, anybody who is dying to hear that band play together, I totally get it. But, you know, the fact remains that if you go and, and just search Carry Fire and put it on and listen to it, you'll go, this guy's doing really cool shit. Yeah, and he doesn't have someone standing next to him trying to tell him what to do. I mean, <laughs> I, simply put, Led Zeppelin was Jimmy Page's band, right? And Robert Plant is not interested in being in someone else's band, and I don't think Jimmy knows how to make it their band. Jimmy just does things Jimmy's way, and why would Robert want to go back to that? Right. I like yeah. it. Yeah, you're shooting down all reunion possibilities, aren't you? For no every band, are you only Oasis, <laughs> but I'm sworn to secrecy on when. <laughs> Oh man, are you serious? Is, is that a serious or a joke or a joke or a serious joke? Come on, Stephen. There's a hook in your mouth right now. It's the size <laughs> of my fist. Steve, always a pleasure talking with you, man. Thanks for thanks for talking with me. Always, thank you, brother. All right, take care. Okay, guys, that was me and Steve, and of course, me and Robert. What a great episode, man. You know, I knew I had to come up with something good after that Springsteen series, and uh, I think I delivered. If I may toot my own horn here. Uh, so I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as well. As always, i got to give a shout-out to my man, Derek Madden, for putting it all together. Hey, thank you for taking me to Robert Plant. I feel like I owe you on this Well, one. hey, you know, it was a bustle in the hedgerow. We had to uh, we had to see what was going on out there. Also, a shout-out to the Jimmy Page of the Celebration Rock Podcast, Josh Copperman, the man who wrote our theme song. Thank you, Josh. And, of course, I want to thank our listeners I've seen a really big uptick in reviews on iTunes. You guys are saying such nice things about us. Thank you so much. That stuff really does make a difference as far as, you know, helping our rankings and and giving us a higher profile and making us, helping us so we can stick around. So thank you for that. And thanks, you know, just for telling your friends about us and, you know, the nice word of mouth that we've received. All these things really help with the podcast. So thank you again. Tell a friend, tell your friends to subscribe. You know, we have a big back catalog and, 
I know there were some missing episodes there for a while because we just recently switched platforms, but our entire back catalog is now free and ready to be perused. We have our Pearl Jam series. We have our great Jeff Tweedy and John Starrett interview from last year, Father John Misty. We've got some you know, great Matt Berninger interviews in there from the National. Tons of good stuff. Tons of stuff to dive into. Uh, so, guys, thanks again for listening to this week's edition of the Celebration Rock Podcast. We will talk to you again next week. On the Westwood One Podcast Network.